Well, hello again, you sensational sea urchins. Welcome back to another week of A Little Greener, your new favorite podcast all about nature conservation and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm here today, as always, with Casey. Hi, everybody. And we are so glad to have you back for another week. And we like to start off usually by checking in with everybody to see how you did on your challenge from last week. And we had a a very personalizable challenge, I guess, last week. We talked a little bit about Earth Day. We talked about some easy ways that you could make sustainable changes in your own life. And then we challenged you to pick one thing, to make one sustainable change, one thing that you could commit to last week. Casey, did you do this challenge? I did. I went with the laundry angle and decided to actually pay attention to the knob on my dryer instead of just putting it on the timed. And I found that even though I didn't have a moisture control, I still had like an energy efficiency set setting with a little green leaf. So I was like, let's try that. So that's my goal is to pay attention a little bit more rather than just to set it to crank it up to 40 minutes or whatever and wait. So hopefully that's my little change and it doesn't really take any energy. Did you try it yet? I did try it. Yes. I, here's the thing about me and laundry is I just set it and leave. So I don't know, like (laughs) if it took that much longer (laughs) or what I do, but your stuff was dry. Yes. My stuff was dry. That's the important part. What about you, Sarah? Uh, that is so funny because I, I did that. So I kind of sort of did a lot of little things, if that makes sense. So the there were two things that we talked about last week that I did and one of them was the same as you I just never paid attention I always used the time dry and I never noticed and when I went to look at my dryer I also have a little leaf eco-friendly dryer setting so I'm going to use that as well Uh, and then I also still had my heat dry on my dishwasher which I didn't even realize so I turned that off hopefully a quick easy savings there. Uh, But there were actually a couple other things that I did last week too that had kind of been in the works. I think I had mentioned some sustainable swaps. I'd mentioned uh, plastic bags as being a a thing that I still had, like little plastic sandwich bags that I knew I needed to get rid of. And I had bought myself some uh, glass storage containers to use for food food storage leftovers and things like that but I still kind of had a need for some bags and Casey saved me Casey gave me some like reusable snack bag storage bags type things so I now have that so I can hopefully probably finish out my little plastic bags and then get rid of them for good so that was exciting and then the last thing that, that I wanted to mention is is I typically like every year I will try to make one change. I mean, not to say that that's the only thing I'll do in a year, but I do try to pick like, okay, what's one thing I'm going to focus on this year. And so a thing prior to last week's podcast that I had already decided that I wanted to do, which is not strictly nature related, but it, but ties in was to be more active in local government. So we talked about being an advocate um, as one one easy thing that we could do in our own lives. And we here in Indiana have been trying to fight against a bill that would remove some protections on our wetlands. And so I did reach out to my representatives about that. Unfortunately, just a little bit ago today, I learned that uh, that bill is still moving forward, uh, unfortunately. So time to move on to the governor, I guess, uh, is the next step. But um, but I did participate in that sort of advocacy 
advocacy action as well. That's awesome. I am a big proponent to my little act of local government advocacy was fairly recently our governor lifted our mask mandate. So I immediately contacted the mayor and I got this beautiful card that's like embossed wow. being like, thank you for, you know, supporting our extension of the mask mandate. Um, in our job, we're very people focused. And so it is really challenging to feel safe when you're in big crowds. And so that mask mandate was really important. I know to both Sarah and I, yes. um, so that was, it, it, it made me feel good. Cause I've reached out to lots of people before and I, a lot of form letters and this yep. is not, not a form letter, but also it's, also nice to thank your representatives when they do advocate for you. Yes. I think that's incredibly important. We, we focus a lot on, oh, you know, tell them when you want them to do something, but also sometimes you're going to agree with what they do. And it's just as important to say, Hey, thank you for doing that. Cause I support you because they're hearing more of the negativity than they are the positivity. So, yeah. um, do it. Cause you might get a nice little letter that I want to put my bridge <laughs> <laughs> as you should. <laughs> um, that's great. So we hope you guys participated in the challenge as well. If you did make a change, let us know. Uh, post it on social media. Share share with us what you did. Tag us in your posts and let us know. Tag us in your dryer pics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and we'll share it uh, for the world to see. You know. Um, but yeah, we'd love to know, know what you are doing. And uh, that way we can kind of share ideas among our little community. So thanks for participating with us. And Casey, we've got some some news to share this week too. We are always trying to kind of keep an eye on conservation environmental news and we actually have a, a happy story to share. You gotta look out for those happy yes. stories. We, we like to share the happy ones. So there is an endangered species called the right whale in the Atlantic Ocean. And this year they had the most babies born, I think since 2015, 2016. And that is really, really exciting. This is a species that is endangered. There's only about 360 of them left. They're mostly threatened by entanglement in fishing gear and by boat strikes. So those are challenges that they continue to face, but we also are seeing decreased reproduction because we think the whales weren't finding the right food, which is also affected by climate change. So we have 17 little baby right whales swimming around in our oceans and want to protect them. And we're very excited because I think it's, I, correct me if, if you know better, Sarah, but I think it's like more than the last three years of calves combined. Like it, it is a big deal. Yeah, I think that's what they said. Yeah, so these are North Atlantic right whales and yeah, it equals the total of right whale calves born in the three previous years combined and the highest number of births since 2015. So there was a year they had none guys. Yeah. So scientists continue to be concerned about this species. Both the U S and Canada are looking to revamp maybe some protections for them. One of the biggest things again, is that entanglement in fishing gear. So they have closed off certain Various to fishermen, um, but there's going to have to be compromises within the industry and with the government to protect this species in the long run because they're getting tangled up in all sorts of things. Um, and that's really been a huge issue for their populations in addition to not being able to find food, but they seem to have found their zooplankton this year. So yeah. this is good. Yeah. It's, good. it's great news. And we do, you know, the birth rate is so important, especially as they're dealing with these threats from fishing industry and boat strikes and, and all of that, because we need that birth rate to surpass the the death rate and they're saying they that 
these whales really should be producing about two dozen calves per year in order to allow that population to really thrive. So more work to do, but definitely a positive step in the right direction. And the thought of 17 whale calves swimming around just makes me really happy. Go watch YouTube videos of whale calves if you if you need something <laughs> really happy. Those make me very happy. So yes. Yay. Okay. We're really excited about that. Uh, and I wanted to share that with you. And we'll have our little get to know you question this week, Sarah. So I wanted to know if you were an animal, you were the Sarah Carusiensis uh, <laughs> species, <laughs> where would your ideal habitat be? Would you be a mountain animal, a beach animal? What, what, what kind of place would you live? Oh, this is so hard. I... Are you migratory? <laughs> I, maybe, I might be migratory, actually, now that you said that. That sounds great because I just, here's here's my dilemma is I want to be where it is warm. You are migratory. Right? <laughs> but yeah, because I don't really want to live in a desert. Not that deserts are hot all the time, people. I, I know, I know. But just I'm just saying, I don't want to live in, in like an extreme dry, arid environment. I also don't really feel great about like a tropical rainforest. It's just like too much for me, I, but I just want to be warm all the time. So I would need to be either like a, a subtropical, maybe like a subtropical forest type situation, or I'm going to be migratory. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that is the, the uh, most on the fence answer that you could possibly give to that question. <laughs> migratory, which that's actually very fitting for me. So. Perfect. What about you? Um, I think the, uh, the Caseus schmidii, um, species. So when we went herping down in, uh, in Kentucky, we were in sort of these hills and valleys of forest with creeks running through it. And that's sort of my grandparents' backyard, very similar to that environment. And I had said out loud, I think this is my habitat. Like I'm very much like hopping on the rocks through the creeks and like, I enjoy the seasons and I just feel very at home in the forest. So I wanted to talk about forests. That's that's where that question us into. Yeah. I didn't even, my brain didn't even make that connection. That's so good. And you, you are even just by that, you're making me want to rethink my answer because you know, (laughs) the great smoky mountains are my happy place. So like part of me wants to say that, but man, I just hate being cold so much. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it still gets cold in the Great Smoky Mountains. It does. And it's not to say that I don't love the beach and I don't uh, love other habitats, but I think that's like where my soul is meant to be is in that habitat. I feel like I'm navigating it like I was meant to be there. So I love it. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, stay tuned. We're going to come back with a review from Sarah. Welcome back, everyone. I've got a a product review for you today. And I mentioned in the intro that I try to to pick some sustainable change to make in in my life every year to kind of focus on. And this product that I'm going to be talking about today was my thing for, I think it was in 2019 uh, when when I first got this. So 
I'm going to be talking about my razor today, uh, which is not something I ever thought I'd be talking about on a podcast, but uh, I have an all metal razor. It's, I got it from uh, a company called Leaf Shave, and this was my sustainable, sustainable swap in 2019. And for me, the thing about sustainable swaps is you should only make a sustainable swap if it fits your lifestyle, right? So like straws are a big thing. Uh, you know, you can buy all of these reusable straws and, you know, people are, are pushing the reusable straw. Like saying no to plastic straws is great. I don't ever use straws, so I don't really need to purchase, you know, a, a reusable straw. So I don't ever want people to feel like forced into a sustainable swap. But for me, disposable razors were a thing that I kind of used and abused a little bit. Um, I found a stat that you, you can find floating around on the internet that the U.S. produces 2 billion disposable razors and blades each year. I actually did a little digging and it seems like that stat, it came from an EPA report like in the late 80s or early 90s. So I don't know how uh, accurate that particular stat is, but regardless, we produce and use a lot of disposable razors and they're not a, typically a single use item, but they're not meant to be used long-term. They're not easily recyclable. They're, they're meant to be thrown away. So anything like that is gonna have an impact on the environment. And I was sort of particularly bad about my razors because if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know, uh, I don't remember anything. So I'm that person that goes to the grocery store to buy, you know, my new blades and I'm standing there like, I don't remember which razor I even have at home. And then I get angry because of how expensive they all are. And I'm like, it's cheaper to just buy a new one uh, than to, to buy a new set of, of blades. So I, I would go through disposable razors and I really wanted to stop that and find a more sustainable alternative. So there are a lot of safety razors out there. Those are kind of the old school, you know, just uh, blades that you have to put in and take out. They're double-sided. They don't have like a swivel head. They were a little scary to me. So I was getting ready. Like I was trying to, to learn and prep myself and getting ready to make that swap. And then through some eco-friendly social media accounts that I follow, some folks who are, you know, doing the, the low waste or zero waste lifestyle, I came across this Leaf Shave brand. And it is literally, it's exactly like a, a disposable razor that you would find in the store. So it has a, the same sort of pivoting head. It's super easy to use. And um, you do still have to load the, the blades. So you get that you buy the little single, you know, razor, razor blades that you can get, you know, a box of 50 for $10 or whatever. Uh, and you just break them in half and slide them right in there. So you can load one, two or three blades at a time, whatever is, is comfortable for you. And then you use it exactly like you would a disposable razor. And I have loved it so much. It's been so wonderful. And I never have to think about going to the store and buying the, the blades again and getting frustrated at the price. So if you are looking uh, for a sustainable swap i would recommend this the the company it's a small business they didn't necessarily start out it doesn't seem like uh, they weren't sort of motivated by being environmentally friendly they just wanted to put a good product out there and realized it had this environmental benefit as well and so they've kind of tried to lean in and, and grow into that as well so they ship 
all plastic free. Everything is paper and cardboard packaging. They do sell blades. You can also buy blades elsewhere, but you can get a little tin from them so that you can you can either ship blades back to them to be recycled if you don't have somewhere local that will recycle your blades for you. Their razors have a lifetime guarantee. Their customer service seems to be fantastic. They do a, a carbon offsetting program, which carbon offsets is a whole nother podcast episode, but, um, but they are, they are making an effort to, to be environmentally, environmentally friendly. I think for, uh, the month of April, they're also making donations on some of their purchases to help coral reef conservation. So seems to be from what I've seen so far, pretty good company. I really do love the product. Again, it's not the only option out there. There are uh, other razors that are non-plastic that you can look into uh, if you're braver than me and want to try the safety razor. But if you're, if you're not into that, I think the leaf razor is a good option. So two thumbs up from me on the, it's, I think, leafshave.com maybe is the website. They're but not a sponsor. It's the, it <laughs> not, uh, guarantee they don't know who we are, <laughs> uh, but I, I do definitely recommend it. If you're interested, check them out. Was it affordable, Sarah? Oh, thank you. I meant to say that. So that is, it is expensive. Um, I think the, just to buy the razor itself is $84, I think, okay. and, or you can buy like a little starter kit that I think is uh, like 115 ish. So it wasn't in that, like I had to plan, I had to prepare. I sort of had looked into it. I knew I was going to do this. Um, and I kind of planned ahead to, to make that purchase. But again, I, I will never have to purchase another one for my entire life. So especially at the, you know, at the rate that I would get disposables, you know, it, it definitely pays for itself uh, after some time, but yes. Yeah, so again, there are cheaper options out there too. Like you can get safety razors, you can get metal safety razors at your, you know, local store, probably for like 15 bucks or something like that. If you, if you want to do that uh, again, I've been impressed with, with the company and the quality of product here, but it, yeah, know that you're making a little bit of an investment. Yeah. That's good to know. I mean, razors are incredibly expensive. So the fact that you could replace the actual blades for cheaply does seem like a nice long-term cost-cutting measure because yeah. man, I let them go real dull because I don't want to buy new razor right. blades. <laughs> so I have just a regular, like one with replaceable heads, but it's, it's got a plastic body and our water is so hard here at our house that like, it's got a lot of yucky buildup. So I am attracted to the idea of something that's a little sleeker and a little bit more durable. That's not going to be plastic in the end, even though I've had mine for a couple of years. So awesome. Thanks for your great review, Sarah. You guys stick around and we'll get to the main body of our episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the main body section of our episode. And today we're going to talk about forest certification, uh, which if you know me is my jam. It's my cup of tea. I'm a nerd. I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> and we love that about you. <laughs> Good. Cause, uh, you know, one of the, the things we talked about in our first episode is trying to use this podcast to help cut down on some of the informational barriers that exist for consumers. And this is something that I have found is really interesting and something I didn't entirely understand. So I 
piece of research so I could help share it with you. So, um, some quick reminders for you. We're not experts. I am not part of any of the organizations <laughs> we're talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about these things in broad terms. I've done some research. I have sources, but, um, we may miss something. We may not cover your particular, uh, certification system. Cause actually there's lots of them. Um, so for example, hello, international listeners. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. A uh, couple questions. How did you find us? Cause we don't necessarily know you and we're just curious. So if you find us on social media and want to let us know, like how you found our podcast, that would be awesome. Um, in Europe, you guys have the PEFC, which I forget what it stands for, but that's your for a certification system. It's like the program for something or other. I will say, I don't know very much about it. Um, the but F stand for forest. Yes. <laughs> C might stand for certification. I don't know, <laughs> but P definitely stands for program. Cause you put your cute little E at the end of it where we don't. So that's how I remember that. So anyway, uh, it is connected here in the U S to our SFI program. And we're going to talk about SFI. Um, so if you've got thoughts on PEFC, I'd love to hear it, but we're going to most focus on some, the SFI, which is a U.S. based, uh, one, but mostly the FSC, which is going to be more of a global one too. So it probably, this should hopefully apply to all of our listeners because we all use paper, right? Paper and wood that come from forests. So my first question is for Sarah and Sarah, why are forests important for us? Why should we care? I would go back. I think I said this in our first episode too. I mean, if you breathe air, <laughs> forests are important to you. Um, forests are important for a lot of things, plants, animals, humans, a lot of different species of plants and animals can be found in the forest. So about 80% of terrestrial biodiversity found in forests. They're carbon sinks. So our forests help our, just like our oceans capture some of that carbon dioxide. So um, deforestation is a huge contributor to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Forests help protect our waterways. So healthy roots, tree systems, prevent soil erosion, all of those sorts of things. And then from the sort of util utilitarian aspect as well, forests provide a lot of those things that we use. I mean, Casey just mentioned wooden paper, but food, medicines, probably lots of things as yet undiscovered found in our forests as well. So all kinds of things. Forests are important for everyone. So important. Everyone should be speaking for the trees. Identify as a Lorax, please, after this yes. episode. Yes. And they are also not only provide a lot of, as we talked about, jobs and food and ecological services, they're also the home to about 60 million indigenous people across the world who are our best protectors of our forests. So we'll talk a little bit about them today, but I'm sure we'll talk more about the role that indigenous peoples play across our world to protect our environment as well. Um, also, very recently, they came out with a report showing that if we ended the threats caused by unsustainable logging globally, we would reduce global extinction risk by 16%, which is huge. Uh, we had the chance to meet Dr. Russell Mittermeier, who's a really amazing 
conservationists out there. And he, I went to one of his talks and he said, I know it can be very overwhelming basically when you're to the environment to know where to start, because as we've talked about before, there's, there's oceans, there's climate change, there's all habitat loss, all these things. And he made the argument that forests are actually the most important thing we should be focusing on right now because of things like the fact that they hold so much of our planet's biodiversity because of all the services that we all get from them and that they're one of the biggest barriers we have against the biggest uh, effects of climate change by being right. a carbon sink. So by protecting and restoring forests, we're going to be really able to protect ourselves. And, and there's a yeah. lot of causes of deforestation. So uh, I actually found it difficult to quantify the amount of deforestation specifically caused by logging, um, whether it was legal or illegal. Uh, the best estimate I could find is that in countries that account for the most deforestation, wood production accounts for about 10% of that deforestation. And that's from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, there's lots of other reasons that we're seeing forests disappear. Basically, two major issues we're having are, and they're very generalized, but one is poverty. So clearing forests to have subsistence living, being able to be able to grow your own food, to slash and burn ways of being able to produce energy and charcoal. So poverty is a big driver. And the other one is the global market for commodities. So things like agriculture from beef and soy, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. But the other thing is timber production for wood and paper. So the Union of Concerned Sciences said from 2016 to 2060, paper consumption will at least double. And for some types of paper, it will triple. So this is going to be something that continues to put pressure on our forests and especially mm -hmm. our tropical forests. So Sarah, question for you. When were you aware of the rainforest being in danger? When did you first hear that? Um, to the surprise of no one listening, I don't really remember. And I, <laughs> I like, I don't, I don't say it to be funny, but I, I, it's, it's true. I honestly don't have a clear memory. Again, I'm sure that it's something that I learned about as a kid. I'm sure that it's something that I learned about through going to zoos and seeing signage. I'm sure we probably talked about it in school, but for better or for worse, and maybe maybe it's for the better, I don't have a strong memory of that like being a huge impact on me. I think probably I just didn't feel very connected to it, honestly. Like I didn't understand how it impacted me. It felt like something very distant from me. So again, for me personally, I didn't really become aware of maybe how big the threat was and what role I could play in, in it until I was older, you know, probably in college, which maybe is, is a little bit weird for people in, in my profession, but that's genuinely, that's my story. So, well, no global tragedies for Sarah for the <laughs> rainforest before the fourth grade. <laughs> so developmentally appropriate, but well uh, done teachers. Yes, there you go. <laughs> or Sarah's brain dumping out information. Yeah, <laughs> They're like, that's not necessary. That's too much. <laughs> Probably more likely. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I thought the only rainforest in the world was the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. I was, that's all I was aware of. My cousins had some computer game. I swear they got out of a cereal box that we would play. It was like a journey down the Amazon. But 
if you, that's where you're currently at in your knowledge base, there are other rainforests and very notably there is rain, a big patch of rainforest in central Africa. And then in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of very important and very old rainforests as well. Um, the Amazon's actually a pretty young rainforest. So uh, in the 1980s is really when tropical deforestation rose as a prominent issue. And while there was some national legislation that was put in place to protect forests, a lot of stakeholders, environmental groups, human rights groups wanted international policy put in place. And the kind of place that they wanted to do that was at the 1992 summit, um, which gathered together lots and lots of countries. And they addressed a lot of planet related issues, but unfortunately it did not result in worldwide forest protection agreements. So in those cases where we don't have government regulation, this was actually a very early scheme to be able to impose a different sort of structure. And this is basically a market-based regulatory approach. Instead of going with the government policy, this is a way to try and incentivize industry to voluntarily adhere to certain standards set forward. And so the FSC was one of the first ones. And Sarah, I know you're familiar with the FSC. So could you tell us what it stands for and what broadly it is? Well, once again, the F stands for forest. <laughs> uh, it is the Forest Stewardship Council, and it is a, an organization that has stakeholders from different areas of timber industry, and they basically are seeking to, so they, they have that set of standards and they're seeking to promote responsible forest management, basically. So still like balancing the needs of this industry, but doing it in a way that's going to be less damaging. Yeah. It's basically the idea that us as consumers, we like sustainable things and they have done studies showing that we say that we're going to pay more money if you can prove something is more eco-friendly. And so the FSC went to create a set of standards that defined what that meant. And if you meet them, you can slap the little Forest Stewardship Council label on your product and the consumers will know that's the eco-friendly one and I will pay more money for that. And that part has worked. Um, FSC would, so things that have been certified, fetch 15 to 25% more at auction than uh, non-FSC would. So that's good. That incentivizes that structure. And some things about how the FSC works, basically it's based around 10 different principles. They're very basic principles that, and then they have different objectives underneath those. So things like um, making sure that it was harvested legally and of course holds certain environmental value and uh, respects the rights of indigenous peoples and the workers who are doing the work. So things that are important, not just to environmentalists, but also to people who are concerned with human rights and economic conditions as well. And the way that this is sort of set up is these rules are agreed upon by three chambers that have equal vote. There's the economic chamber, the environmental chamber, and the social chamber. And once they have all these rules together and they update these rules all the time, they have third-party auditors go out and certify whether or not a plot of land and the way the company is managing it follows the FSC guidelines. And these third-party auditors are not actually associated with the FSC like themselves, but that's how they're able to implement what they want. So 
uh, 492 million acres have been certified since the formation see in 1993. Now, interestingly, about 85% of that is in North America and Europe. The FSC was actually developed originally to try and address tropical deforestation. So in some ways that is definitely can be seen as a failure. If you're trying to address specifically tropical deforestation and mostly richer countries are the ones buying into your system, then there is a problem, right? Um, One of my things I think is most interesting though, is that Gabon, which is a country in Africa, is now requiring all forestry concessions to be FSC certified by 2022. Now, I find this really interesting because basically... FSC is taking the place of these international agreements and standards, but now is actually being used as the model for a tropical country with tropical rainforests to make sure that they're meeting these standards. So I found that super, super interesting. I'm sure there's a huge conversation to be had of like why a government would abdicate that responsibility basically on this this more market-based solution, but it probably boils down to a lot of the reasons that that needs to be put in place in the first place, which is that a lot of governments, even if they have laws, don't have good enforcement for them. Um, and lots of those countries just don't have the means to be able to make sure that their forests are protected. So that's where the FSC comes in as kind of a global uh, marker. Sarah, did you have something to add? No, I'm just that like, just hearing all of that and kind of seeing some of those numbers, like four, 492 million acres, it just seems like such an incredible undertaking for any organization, you know, so, and I know we're going to dive into this a little bit, but thinking about how you regulate that and how you really carry all of this out in a manner that is effective is just interesting. So we'll talk more about that. Yes. And we're going to take a pause right now on the FSC. I want to change course really quick to the SFI. And Sarah, are you familiar with the SFI? Only vaguely. So like, I feel like I've seen their logo before, but I couldn't have told you what SFI stood for or what it was really. So not in the same way that I'm familiar with FSC. So the first time I saw SFI logo, I was looking for the FSC logo (laughs) (laughs) on toilet paper. Yeah. (laughs) So that's probably same for me. Yeah. Found it. To give you an idea, we'll post them on our social media, what those logos actually look like. The FSC is basically a check mark that turns into a tree. And then the SFI is like a leaf with a tree inside it. Um, so I found it and was like, sustainable, great. Um, it stands for sustainable, F stands for forest initiative, <laughs> <laughs> SFI. I, after doing some research, I found out that they were formed in 1994. Remember the FSC was formed in 1993 and they were formed in response to the formation of the FSC. Some people within the timber industry saw the FSC as a threat to the profitability of timber and their ability to expand into markets and starting to get shut out of markets by being outcompeted by a quote sustainable product. But they didn't go about that by saying FSC is bad this is kind of, to me, pretty devious. They saw value in the green label. They know that's what consumers wanted. So they created their own green label and that was the SFI. 
Now to compare them a little bit to FSC, as far as their standards go, the FSC has standards that are performance-based. So basically like you have to kind of prove that this is sustainable. Whereas the FFI oftentimes has you just like do a preliminary assessment. And then as long as you've done the assessment, you can then move forward with whatever your plans are. Many other standards are just acting within compliance of existing laws. So for example, if uh, when you're approaching indigenous folks about using their land. It's kind of like, well, as long as you're complying with whatever the national law is, you're acting within the SFI standards. And a lot of some timber companies are letting their FSC certificates expire and replacing them with SFI as the FSC starts to raise and revise these standards. So the SFI has been accused of greenwashing. So Sarah, what is greenwashing? Aside from something that's making me really frustrated right now. (laughs) uh, So greenwashing is basically when a company or organization usually would use like their marketing or their advertising or their, their labeling to make consumers think that they're eco-friendly or doing things that are responsible for the environment to a greater degree than than they really are. So there's usually not much, if any, actual substance behind it. So it might be like, sometimes it's just literally like making your label the color green, <laughs> like will actually make people think it's more eco-friendly or, you know, saying things like, all natural or, you know, things like that. So just making claims or leading your consumer to believe that you are more environmentally friendly than you really are. Right. Which yes. is very frustrating. It is. The, the point of greenwashing, basically, I think the, the most important crux of it is that it is intentionally deceitful. Right. It is trying to make you feel a certain way more than it actually is. And part of the problem is that a lot of our language around sustainability, sustainability being one of those words is very (laughs) malleable. So things like all natural, eco, sustainable, do not have legal definitions. Uh, You can use those in, in advertising. And as long as you're, you have something in the ballpark to, to back it up, it doesn't count as lying. So a lot of companies will try and use this to make people buy their product without actually having to do all of the work that goes into it. And so the SI has been accused of greenwashing because it is the timber industry's way of making people think that they have gone through the same sort of rigorous standards that the FSC has. So there, I I wanna point out again that standards are reviewed over time. And so the straight up greenwashing that it was accused of in its formation, um, definitely the standards have gotten better over time. And a lot of the, the articles I could find that were talking about the lack of, of good standards within the SFI were pretty old, but I did find one from the National Resource Defense Council written by Courtney Lewis, who had some really specific critiques of the newest set of standards from the SFI. And so one of the first ones she has is that it does not require the free prior and informed consent from indigenous people to use their land. Now, if you're not familiar with this, this is kind of the standard, I believe it's set around like the UN as what we'd be approaching people with. I don't know if you can hear mascot ginger shaking out in the background. (laughs) Um, So basically if you're approaching 
people who live in the area for rights to use their land. There should be no threat of violence against them. This should not be approaching them after you start logging or setting fires in their area. And you should be allowing them the informed consent in that they understand the ramifications of what you're going to be doing. So that could be knowing exactly how long you're leasing their land for, or knowing the exact impact it's going to have long-term on the environment. That's going to be some important information for them to know, to be able to make that informed decision and then agree to. Um, so they don't actually require that. Like I said, they, they kind of have standards that really just hang around that like well, legally allowed. Um, they don't also prohibit the conversion of forests into plantations, which is kind of crazy. So if you don't know, like a natural forest has a lot more biological diversity and therefore supports another higher level of animal diversity than a plantation of trees. So like if you clear out that forest and you replace it with, I don't know, eucalyptus or whatever other trees you want, that's not the same thing. I mean, it only prohibits the clearing and conversion in cases where the forest is, is critical habitat for endangered species. It still allows clear cutting, <laughs> which is also kind of crazy. Like, because again, as a consumer, if you are thinking, I want a sustainable product, you would never envision clear cutting as part of that as a general consumer. And so uh, they still allow it to a much greater extent than the FSD does. And they also don't have protection for threatened species. Now, I will say this is not unique to the SFI. The U.S. is not very good at putting in place protections for animals before they're endangered. So there's a lot of critique of the Endangered Species Act in that, well, we haven't had a whole lot of the species recover, but it's because we don't really allow species to have safe, sustainable populations before we actually start putting laws in place to protect them. And so it makes it much more challenging for them to recover. Do you want to just real quick, Casey, before we move on, say a little bit more for folks who might not even know what clear cutting means? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I it's basically like what it sounds yeah. like, where you're just going in and just clearing huge swaths of forest. Right. Basically, like the, you might think, well, what's the alternative to clear cutting, right? Um, there are selective logging practices, basically, where you go into a forest and you identify which trees are going to be both valuable for you and that the forest could still maintain a certain level of biodiversity and health when you cut down those trees. Now, there's still going to be a lot of debate over whether or not that's still helpful because they found if you cut down a tree, like birds and insects oftentimes will flee from the area. If you cut down certain types of trees, it might be, not be able to support really large megafauna, so large animals that require certain things. So, But that's the alternative to just like straight up the, what you it picture in your head yeah. when you think of yeah. deforestation. Do you remember Fern Gully? Did you ever watch that movie? Uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't really watch it as a kid. I watched it, I think, once or twice as I was older. And man, it's zany. I'm always there for a good Robin Williams bat rap, but well, yeah. But that, like, if you if you've seen that <laughs> yes. movie, you know what I'm talking. Like, just that those those images of clear cutting, like that you think of there. Yes. There you go. Yes. I learned about rainforest destruction by watching Fern Gully. When Fern I- Gully. There you go. Okay, so Sarah has pinpointed the time in her childhood. <laughs> this is going on. Okay. This is a good time though, for me to uh, tell you another story about the time that the timber industry was a little bit shady. So we all remember the Lorax Casey wrote a very bad thesis about it. And 
so when that came out, obviously a lot of children were like, oh my gosh, we have to save the trees. I'm going to be a good Lorax and not let people cut them down. Good reminder to folks that like, this is, this is a, like a good little allegory. Like it is, people acted as if they were attacking loggers by publishing this book and that Dr. Seuss had like a very political agenda. He just, just wanted kids to care about the environment. <laughs> but uh, someone who was an active member of the timber industry actually wrote a parody of the Lorax. It's called Truax. <laughs> Sarah's face right now. Um, it's a really bad book, guys. It's not good. Um, the illustrations are not bad, but basically it's about a kindly logger named Truax who gets accosted by a true maniac, the guard bark. And so Sarah, at the bottom of our document, oh I have gosh. placed a picture of the guard bark. And I won't. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Give me your reaction. Describe what you're watching. To me. Um, I don't even. Okay, <laughs> hold on. I won't take a seat or listen or look. The guard bark raved on. He snarled and he shook. And there is an indescribable. <laughs> uh, I don't even know. Are those horns on his head? Um, I believe he's like a tree man. A tree man. Okay. Okay. Like a, like a naiad or a dryad, right? A dryad or this. Yes. I think Um, you're correct. uh, It is unclear if he's wearing clothes or not. Yes. Uh, He's shaking his fist and jumping up on on down on a pile of lumber Oh my gosh. What is this? How have I never heard about this before? Because it's bad, Sarah. The timber industry paid for thousands of these books to go out to school children. Uh, Okay. Um, Yes, I'm looking at a very uh, angry tree man shaking his fist. And he basically continues to be angry the whole book as the uh, very quote unquote reasonable logger tells him why it's not bad to cut down the trees. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened, and we'll post a picture of it on our social media. Oh, yes, we will. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I discovered that when I was writing my thesis on the Lorax, and I was like, wow. Also, this is still free to, like, you can read the whole book online for free. So if you want to look it up and be offended by, like, bad political commentary (laughs) and the fact that, uh, that there's inconsistencies within the the parody itself. But anyway, so this is not the first time. I mean, obviously this is part of the problem is that the timber industry wants to continue to make profits. Um, And that's also a problem that SFI has is that it is a lot of its stakeholders are industry heavy. So when you have industry people trying to set the standards, they're incentive is not to create the most sustainable model. Their incentive is to make a compromised model so that they continue to expand and make profit. Whereas the FSC having a little bit more balance of stakeholders means that those folks who are prioritizing the health of the environment and the rights of people can balance out better those needs and wants to make more profit. So It's been confusing for people. Basically, a lot of companies have been like, cool, we'll just take certified wood. (laughs) Whatever, whatever has a sticker on it, this is sustainable, then that's that's what we'll use. But there has been a push by people who understand that 
the SFI just has these really big weaknesses. And I'm not sure if I pointed it out, but the SFI is specifically for North America. It has these weaknesses. It's not to say everyone involved with the SFI is like a bad money hungry person, but it is to say that it is a compromised model and it just does not have as stringent of standards as the FSC. And I think most of our listeners are probably looking for something that has more of those stringent standards and wants to to do things above the letter of the law. That's another thing is that like, if you're just following the laws for a lot of your standards, then what's the point of putting an extra label on it? You should just be able to like, this is legal wood. (laughs) (laughs) That should be all wood. So Stand Earth, which is formerly Forest Ethics, compiled a list of companies that are either no longer using SFI or no longer promoting it, at least as a green option. So there was a lot of people who are like, oh, we make brochures and they're using SFI wood and therefore we're eco-friendly. Like they could still use the SFI, but they can't or at least they have chosen luckily not to be like, and that's eco-friendly. And some of these companies include Comcast and Disney and Southwest Airlines, Aetna amongst others. And I think what's important to note is none of these are paper and wood companies. These are all just random companies out there. Everyone uses paper. Most people use wood doing something. Right. And so any company can commit to these greener practices by committing to the higher standards. That's not to say that the FSC doesn't have its critiques. So as I mentioned, a lot of those certified acres are within countries like the US and Europe. Now, lots of these countries and and Canada, lots of these countries are big producers of wood. So it's nothing to have them there, but it isn't necessarily meeting its objectives. Uh, Pros for it is that a meta-analysis showed that the FSC certification in the tropics did reduce the degradation of forests. Um, So overall, that means just the quality of forests were better. And it also improved labor and environmental conditions. So it was meeting some of those standards. But the cons are that it hasn't stopped deforestation (laughs) um, in those areas. And another really big con is that there have been several scandals that have come out where companies who claim to be FSC certified were found to be engaged in illegal logging or specifically not meeting those FSC standards. Part of being FSC word is definitely being legal. So we found some issues with that in Ukraine and in Russia. And a really big recent issue has been with the company of Corindo. Corindo operated against FSC guidelines in Papua and Guinea by clear-cutting forests against the wishes of local peoples. They claimed that they acted within the laws of the country. Obviously, that would have flown if they were SFI, but not if, if they're FSC. They did not seek that prior and informed and free consent from the local people there. And FSC had so much criticism specifically because they didn't really give these big consequences for this action. They decided to keep them found with on with further investigation that things were really, really bad, <laughs> that they cleared a lot, a lot of acres, acres of it. And they currently have conditional certificate and they've kind of set out some standards that Corindo has to meet if they want to continue to keep their FSC. So Sarah, what options does FSC have if a company is a bad actor? So I I looked into this 
a little bit and they do have a a system in place for when concerns are raised and basically anyone can raise a concern if you have the the evidence to do so so they will look through any complaints or concerns that they they receive and screen those to make sure that there is a legitimate concern and they will run investigations uh, on those concerns and on those those stakeholders and then from there they can take a a, a couple of different decisions. So Casey mentioned this conditional certificate. In this case, they can and and have pulled certification for companies that have had concerns raised against them. So they will no longer be able to operate within FSC. They won't be able to have that logo placed uh, on, on their product. There is, though, still the option if a company after that, if certification is pulled from an organization, that they can work towards, they, they can work with FSC still and provide a way back in if a company shows that they, they want to try again. Basically, they want to do better this time. They want to make changes. They will kind of set a plan in place, or they can at least choose to work to set a plan in place to bring those organizations back in to FSE through whatever their set criteria is. So they can they can decide to do those conditional certificates, or they can decide to separate from them from FSE as well. And that's all on FSC's website too. So you can read a little more in detail about each of those things. Um, you can read about specific claims as well if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that process. Yeah, FSC has found some support in that they are public with a lot of these records. So if they have, if a company has a complaint filed against them, you're going to find it on the website. They got some flack for heavily redacting the Corindo mm -hmm. information. But the reason they did that is because Corindo uh, offered to sue them. <laughs> so, uh, but this is really where we hit the issue with market-based solutions anyway. As Sarah outlined, they can work with the company, they can pull their certification, they can give them some bad PR, but at the end of the day, if a company decides to sever all relationships with the FSC, the FSC has no, can't no, shut them down. can't shut them down. There's no way to shut down the company. There's no way to find them for damages. There's no way to send the people in charge to jail. And this is, I think, one of the biggest weaknesses with not having laws put in place for these things is that you don't have actual, what you would consider, basically FSC is a carrot. If you get certified, you get more a higher price for your wood and you get to say that you're sustainable, but there's not really a good stick alternative and so those companies are just like, well, we'll just go with SFI. We can still get some of our consumer good graces, uh, even if we can't get as much money for it, because lots of companies are no longer accepting that as like the green alternative and paying more for it. People are still choosing it because they're not informed that that's not the most sustainable option. But until we have better laws worldwide, we're going to continue to have issues. So Greenpeace just came out with a report reviewing lots of certification systems for a lot of different industries that end up impacting deforestation. So that includes soy and palm oil and things like the FSC. And their critique overall is, is just, is all of this greenwashing because none of it's effective in the end. I think that anyone who tries to claim that this is the best case solution, it, it's not the best case solution, but if there is no global 
if, if there are no regulations, then this might be the best we have. Right. So yes, we need to be, make sure that all of these companies are following these guidelines best they can, but they are limited in a certain capacity. Right. I feel like this is to like a, a really good almost sum- summation of some of the things that we've talked about in terms of the importance of educating ourselves, which hopefully you're getting some here. So again, I, you know, I've never, I'd never done any research on SFI. I didn't know a lot of the things, Casey, that you were talking about tonight, but I also have never really supported F- SFI when I see it on product because I know that I didn't know anything about it and I knew about FSC. And so that, that was the logo logo that I was always looking for. But I think because greenwashing is such an issue, I think, you know, just recognizing that we still do need to educate ourselves a little bit to really make sure that the things that we are doing or or purchasing really are what they say they are, uh, is important. So educating ourselves, using our individual power as consumers is important then. So once we know better, we do better and we, we try to make the responsible consumer choice. And then like you were saying, what, what we need to really help make this better in the long run is going to be those stronger, stronger laws and regulation. And so doing our part as advocates for that is important too. So the other thing to say is that if a company is not SFI certified, doesn't mean that they're not going above and beyond the SFI standards. It doesn't mean that they're not doing sustainable things. It's just as a consumer, it's really hard to get through all of what's, even if you, you go on pages for the sustainability page for a company, it's really easy to be like, yeah, this seems all good. Right. And that's, that's the point of the certification system is to be able to make those determinations for you. And so that you can trust when the labels on the product, that it is what you want. Overall, we have not seen FSC impact deforestation, according to 360 Yale on on an article there. And that seems to be because a lot of small scale operations can't afford to be FSC certified. Remember that you have to pay for some people will say that the fact you have to pay for auditing and that the auditors make money off of the fact that you're certified is a conflict of interest. There's this is how almost all certification systems, no matter what kind of certification system does it, but it is also at least the auditors on FSC are randomized. So basically you can't be like, I want Fred because him and I are friends and uh, which used to be a problem with the RSPO. So they have a a pretty, a stricter standard than a lot of other ones. Um, The other reason it hasn't seemed to have much of an effect on deforestation is a lot of deforestation is driven by non-timber industry standards or, or causes things like land conversion to agriculture for beef, soy, and palm oil production, as well as a lot of those subsistence things as well. So right now we are still seeing lots of deforestation, unfortunately, but moving into kind of what we can do, Sarah, what paper and wood products have you interacted with today? Oh my goodness. I have uh, my podcasting notebook in front of me right now, which is my Star Wars. Say, is that Star Wars? Join the Rebellion. Pretty sure this is not certified in any way. Um, dollar notebook that I have in front of me right now. Um, I, I mean, toilet paper, I guess. Lots of office paper, lots of paper at work. Uh, freaking junk mail in my mailbox as always. And what else? What other paper products? Uh, I mean, books, 
don't think about that too often, the environmental impact of my reading habit, but uh, lots of paper in, in my book. Yeah. I think you just pointed out a whole bunch of things that people interact with all the time. Uh, Yesterday I was cooking sweet potatoes and I had them on parchment paper Mm. and the parchment paper had the FSC logo on it. I was like, oh, excellent. Talk about that. Speaking of books, like I believe Dr. Mittermeier's books that I do have are printed on FSC certified paper as well. So you can actually see that sometimes in notebooks, in regular books, on folders and office supplies, definitely if you're ordering printer paper. Um, So one of the things you can do is look for that FSC logo. Again, that's going to be that check mark that forms the tree. Are a couple different kinds of FSC logos. The what you want is really the hundred percent like certified mm-hmm. sor- sources, which means that like if they're making paper out of wood pulp, for example, that all of the trees that went into that were all from an FSC certified concession. There are other ones that are from mixed sources. This is slightly weaker. Obviously, it still has to be like legally cut wood and things. But um, it is slightly weaker. You can also find FSC labels that'll say it's from 100% recycled sources, which is also great. Um, so my parchment paper was from Mixed. That's not my favorite one to buy, but I was just pleasantly surprised it was on there in the first place. So, <laughs> so that was exciting. But in addition to that, gosh, I think it was Recycling Revolution is the source. Americans use 680 pounds of paper every year or something like that, which is absurd. That's so much paper. And so what we can do is try and reduce our, our paper right. usage overall. We're, we're seeing that deforestation and the timber industry is going to be expanding and that's just not sustainable. It's, you can't demand more paper and not need more trees as of right now. And so doing things, little things, if you've got kids, have them color on both sides of the paper. So they're not just going through printer paper, like crazy. I'm someone guilty of buying a new notebook just because <laughs> like I have an idea and this is a pretty notebook and it's going to motivate me to do my writing that yep. I said I was going to do. No, <laughs> use your, your unused ones that you have at home that are half full um, and just rip out the pages that you've already, already used. It's not as pretty, but it's better for the environment. Saying no thanks if someone uh, asks you if you want a receipt, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but you also mentioned junk mail. Oh, I hate junk mail hate so it. much. Um, there are websites you can go on and you can sign up to reduce your junk mail. So basically it'll send out to companies being like, please take this person off your mailing list. Lots of small businesses mailing is actually a very great way that they find business, but gosh, how many credit cards can you be offered? How many right. times does my internet company have to send me extra things when they're cutting me out during this podcast? <laughs> Sarah looks like she has, has similar frustration. I well, I was just about to say, I always get the ones from the cable company that make you think they're important. Yes, they're you, like open immediately. And you have to like tear the edges off and you spend 60 seconds trying to get the stupid thing open to realize it's junk mail. So not only is junk mail bad for the environment, it's bad for my stress level. So get rid of your junk mail if you can. Yeah. So if you do that, that would be great because it's useless to all of us. And like, other than lining our bird's cage, no use for it. So that is some of the advice, but we'll, we'll get a little bit more into it during our action. So anything more to add Sarah about forest certification systems? 
I kind of just want to sort of recap. I feel like it can be really frustrating. Again, I mentioned how frustrating greenwashing is. Like I'm to the point where whenever I see any sort of environment or nature related claim, I'm I'm almost less likely to buy the thing sometimes because I feel like I need to go and do research to, to make sure that it, it is what they're saying is really true and really beneficial. But I don't like it shouldn't be like that. Uh, and these labels should exist to help us make better choices. So I feel like I understand how that can be frustrating. It can be frustrating. I mean, I like the FSC and I do my best to look look for this logo and purchase FSC products when I can. And it can be hard, I think, sometimes to hear things like this and that there are environmental organizations that will speak negatively about FSC. And that's that's not to knock anybody that is. It's like Casey said earlier, like this is not anybody's idea of a perfect system. I don't think the FSC is perfect. I don't think it's possible for something with that much size and scope to work perfectly. I also think it's important to remember that it, I mean, 1993, right? It's not that long. Like we haven't been around for that long. So we need to, uh, rather than to just dismiss it fully, in my opinion, is to to recognize what it can do, what it can't do, and try to support and make make things better. Like we're, we're going to do the best we can with what we have now, and we're going to push to make it better too. I don't want people to get discouraged knowing that it's not perfect, but yeah, I, I guess that's it. Yeah, don't get yes. discouraged just because it isn't perfect right now. Yes. I got into an argument with someone who, when I said C-spheres, wasn't very good um, <laughs> because they, their absolutist stance was basically, there is no sustainable seafood. And I understand where we want to, to be perfect, where we want to be in a situation where we're making a choice that's exclusively good for the environment. But the, the truth is we live in an imperfect world. I wanted to go over some of the critiques of the FSC because I do, I, I want to be clear-eyed about what the Important. weaknesses are. Yeah. Um, but I think, Sarah, you pointing out that, yes, like don't be burnt out on it just because it's not perfect. Don't be fooled by the things that are trying to trick you. But I, I do support the FSC. I want to see it continue to get better. We have seen it got get better throughout its 25 years. We've seen the standards get better and better. They will continue to get better. We hope they get better at a rate that is going to be more uh, sustainable sooner than later. One thing I will also say is since I was a kid and learned about climate change, people have been talking about inventing a machine that sucks carbon out of the air, about this being like some sort of magical solution to climate change. And that has always struck me as kind of easy because trees do that. Right. <laughs> that is a function of trees amongst so many other things. So if you're someone who's really like an advocate for fighting climate change, forest protection is a huge part of that. We need to push on all levers available to us, but this is a huge part of it. So this, this is something that, that because of that, amongst other reasons, including the fact that if I were an animal, I would live there. The forest is really important to me and I want to see it around for a long time. And and lots of people in the industry who log forest also want that same yes. thing. So if we can work together for that better future, that would be amazing. So uh, stick around and we'll get to our action for the week.
All right, guys, we're back to our action of the week. If you're new here every week, we're going to try and give you an action that will help you get on your journey to be a little greener. And this week, we're going to tie it back to forests. I want you guys to do a paper audit. So look through your house and your life (laughs) and see how you interact with paper and what items can you reduce using and what items can you look for alternative. So I'm not telling you, you can't use toilet paper, but can, can you find an alternative? Um, but also maybe you can reduce some of those other options out there. And if you want to go on beast challenge mode, do a paper audit at work. Um, this is one of the reasons I think that individual actions are so important is because we can then impact our little bubble. So where's your printer paper from? Is everybody printing on both sides of the paper? Is everybody double checking that they got their margins right and everything so they can print it right the first time? All of this would be helpful in your own individual impact. I love it. So do paper audit at home, beast mode, do a paper audit at work. I propose that from here on out, we have a regular challenge and a beast mode challenge every week. I am all about that. <laughs> Excellent. This is this next level kind of stuff for you. Um, also, if you like what you're hearing, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at a little greener pod, smash that subscribe button. <laughs> hey, Josh, we did it. Um, that's our okay. Um, but really, if you, if you really like what you're hearing and, and you think we deserve a five-star review, please let us know if you have any feedback for us. We're at, what is it, Sarah? What's our email? What is our email? I believe it is a little greener podcast at gmail.com. So you can send us emails there and tell us how great we are or like politely correct us if you have. <laughs> but yeah, truly. And, and for folks who are international listeners, if you do have information about your own, you, you know, certification systems, anything like that, we, we'd love to hear from you and hear your, your points of view as well. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's been another episode of A Little Greener. Have a great rest of your week. Goodbye.